Well, tonight, turn, if you would, to the small book of Jude as we continue our study in contending for the faith. We're looking at three verses tonight, three, uh, almost uh, three, uh, three sermons worth. Jude 8 through 10 is what we're looking at tonight. Let me remind you that the context here is of looking out for false teachers. And I have to say there are all kinds of people out there who teach all kinds of things. And now in our history and in our technology-driven era, these teachings are so very available. You can go on the internet and find transcripts. You can go on the internet and find audio. You can go on the internet and find video of all kinds of teachers teaching all kinds of things. Things about morality, things about heaven and angels, new things, old heresies. How do we know who is teaching the truth and who is not? That's something Jude is addressing here, looking at particular avenues or particular ways in which false teachers show their true colors. Verses 8 through 10 fit in with verses 5 through 7, which gave us three different examples. And here it follows up by saying these words, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Of course, reading those words, I'm sure you understand them, just like I certainly (laughs) struggle with understanding them. But let us ask the Lord to bless our time together, that he might help us by his spirit to understand them. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as we consider your way in this, your word, we are reminded that all of your word is for our benefit and our good. And your word shall not go out void. Lord, we pray for understanding, hearts to understand. We pray for hearing, ears to hear it. We pray, Lord, that the gifts and the possibilities that you have given us to understand even these difficult teachings, you would give to us by your grace. We pray these things and pray that if anything should not be consistent with your word, shall pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach this section of scripture, I think we need to be reminded again, this is about particularly false teachers. And you know, in our country, in America, the mid to late 19th century, the 1800s, served as a breeding ground for American versions of false teaching. In fact, many of our cults and strange teachings of today originated in this time period. It was post-Civil War period, There were those who were focused particularly, perhaps even overemphasizing eschatology and other kinds of visions and dreams and all those things. And whether it's Joseph Smith and Mormonism, or whether it's the Christian scientist movement, or so many other cults and false teachings in the Christian church, all kinds of these varieties, these false teachers, in a sense, were a dime a dozen. And it had long-term consequences for our country's religious practices. 
Even today, those who would claim that Jesus is not truly uh, truly both man and God, either one of those, people call Christians. Even today, those who would teach very bizarre and false practices amongst the people of God, against Scripture, yet are categorized in the secular teaching of what Christianity is as Christians. Now Jude declares that many of these false teachings have a few things in common. Thus you'll see the words, in like manner. In other words, looking at these examples of those who would both, on the one hand, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and on the other hand, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, with those three examples given in verses 5 through 7, we come to verse 8 and we're reminded, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. In other words, these dreamers particularly those who would be experiential, focus more on experience than scriptural truth, those who would rely especially on dreams and visions and extraordinary things. These individuals would do three things in particular which follow our outline tonight. These dreamers first pollute the flesh. Secondly, they reject authority. And finally, They blaspheme the glories or the glorious ones. Now, as you look at these things, you may be wondering, what does all this mean? Well, the first one is perhaps the easiest one of the three to look at. It's called polluting the flesh or defiling the flesh, according to the ESV translation. And when he says these dreamers in like manner also pollute the flesh, we are reminded that in context, he's reminding us of what he's just said. In other words, he's just repeating these things in another way. What were the previous examples? Well, the first example in verse 5 was of the Israelites in the desert. How did they pollute the flesh? Well, we look especially, we could look at many examples, but for this evening's purpose, I would look especially at Exodus chapter 32. We referenced it this morning in the passage that Moses would hear following up after this event uh, on the Lord calling himself someone who abounds in steadfast love. But lest you forget chapter 32, this is the golden calf chapter. And it's not just that the people looked to Aaron and Aaron collected all their gold and the scriptures tell us that he said to Moses, out came this golden calf. It's not just that they were worshiping this golden calf, but verses 6 and 25 give us euphemisms for polluting the flesh in addition to that. Idolatry in those days often included sexual immorality. And in verses 6 and 25, the words that are used are that the Israelites went out to play. This was a euphemism for immorality. And then in the other verse, verse 25, it tells us that they were let loose. In other words, they let their hair down and they began to do things that those who practice idolatry did in their temples. And they imbibed in the practice of immorality and orgies as they practiced these things in the desert. This is the first example. 
It says these false teachers, like the Israelites in the desert, will encourage this type of behavior which pollutes the flesh. If you remember the second example given two weeks ago tonight, it was of antediluvian angels. Now, antediluvian is a fancy word for before the flood. In other words, in the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, Jude's understanding and many of those in the New Testament times' understanding of that passage of the sons of God and the sons of men were that angels came down and had immoral relationships with people and had children. Now, I'm one of those modern commentators who believes that that passage does not necessarily teach that particular idea of things, that the sons of God were actually believers, the sons of men were probably unbelievers, and it was an unhealthy mix. But whatever the case, the understanding was that these angels were committing sexual immorality with people. That was the understanding in Jude's day. And so again, this is the example. They were polluting the flesh. The third example given last week, very clear, verse 7, referring to Sodom and Gomorrah and particularly the activities around the house of Lot, when the angels of God were going to Lot's house in order to protect him and save him from the judgment that was to come, the people of the area, Sodom and Gomorrah, surrounded the house and wanted to have immoral relationships, particularly with the men that they thought were in the house, not knowing that they were angels. And so here... All of these examples serve to show us what it means to pollute the flesh. And of course, we're reminded in scriptures that many ways of this pollution is unnatural. These things are sins against one's own body, Paul tells us to the Corinthians. We are reminded that all types of sexual immorality, not just one out of the many, but all of them, any kind of sexual relationship outside the bounds of traditional marriage between a man and a woman, pollute the flesh. But what does Jude add to these three verses when he says, in like manner they pollute the flesh? Well, look with me at verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The idea here is first that they are corrupted like those versed by natural instinct. The second phrase there is that they are corrupted like unreasoning animals. In other words, he's saying that those who promote these practices and those who engage in polluting the flesh are like animals acting by instinct. I have to say, as we look at the degradation of morality in our own country, and now it's not just that families are broken and that men and women are leaving for another partner. Now it is baseness that we have never seen publicly before. Some of these things have always happened behind the scenes in our own country. But now publicly displayed, those who would seek to go against what God has created and do things that polluted the flesh in ways we could never have imagined. There are books that are going in our grade schools that describe these things in details. There are ways in which individuals will promote these things by encouraging others not only to 
wrap their hands around them and encourage them, but to condone these actions as good. And yet, this is nothing new. Whether it's the bigamy of Mormonism, something that even the attention of our government was such that they thought it was an abominable practice, now in our day is coming back, is making a comeback. One city in particular in our country has already legalized bigamy. Perversions of liberalism. Those who would say that the scriptures don't really say what they say they say, but doing gymnastics and looking around the authority, turning not to the authority of scripture, but to the authority of theologians or pastors or others, they will take these words and they will say, it doesn't matter how you live. Pollute the flesh. Cults like Jim Jones. Perhaps you remember that cult. He looked like such a wonderful young preacher to many until the time came where it found out that not only was he teaching false things, but he was sleeping with many of the women. You see, all of these things are examples of false teachers who are promoting polluting the flesh. This is one emblem or sign of a false teacher. And notice here, in the context, it's a reminder, these aren't individuals who are going to come in with all of their false teaching blasting when they first enter the room. They are those who come in, who are coming in, creeping in, unnoticed. But in the end, this is one of the signs of a false teacher. The second sign is this, those dreamers who reject authority. Now notice that all of these here described in this section are those who dream this way. In other words, many of them claim to have a vision that opposes the standards of scripture and morality. Now they are visions that raise them to a level above the scriptures or above God himself. And again, like the previous examples, in like manner, they reject authority. Now, how did these others, these previous examples, reject authority? Well, we know one of them is basic. Even as Moses was coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the people were rejecting God's law. They already knew there was only one God. They already knew this was the God who saved them out of Egypt. They already knew that God demanded worship of him alone, and yet this is one of the commandments, this is one of the basic basic precepts of God's law is that we would worship God and they were worshiping something else. So one of the examples here is rejecting God's law. But also in the desert, one of the things that we forget is the very presence of God amongst his people. Here was God with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He's with them. They would get up from the camp And when that pillar departed, they would follow it. And when that pillar stopped, they would stop. And God was the one with these pillars that would separate Israel from Egypt so that Egypt could not overtake them before they were drowned in the sea. And so they were rejecting not only God's law, but they were rejecting God's presence. And so too did the angels. After all, what were angels privileged to have? Many of them access to the throne room of God. 
And they were rejecting the very presence of God and his wonderful, glorious being, rejecting God's law and God's presence. But in the end, what were the people in Sodom and Gomorrah rejecting? They were rejecting the created order of God. Now, they didn't even know how egregious their sin was. They thought that they were seeking to have relationship with men, men with men, which is an abomination before God. Little did they know that they were seeking to have a relationship with God's angels, even more against God's created order. But whatever the case is, here are three examples of rejecting God's authority, his law, his presence, his created order. And it said, these false teachers that are going to come into your churches, Jude says it in his day, and we understand it to be in our day as well. One of the great pillars of a false teacher is to reject the authority of God and his word, specifically Jesus Christ. Notice what it said in verse 4. Deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, you may have heard, of course, that one of the things when you become a Christian is you become a Christian and you make God your Savior. You make Christ your Savior and your Lord. Of course, that terminology is a little messed up. We don't make Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. We just recognize that when we come to faith. We recognize Jesus is our Savior because we're aware of our sins and we begin to understand by faith the atonement of Christ. We know that he's our Savior. It's the same thing with being our Lord. It's not that Jesus is not our Lord until we come to faith. It's that when we come to faith, we recognize that reality. But the false teacher, in the end, rejects the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. How does he do that? How does someone who's in the church preaching and teaching, sometimes even the very word of God, how does he reject that authority? Because he begins to add to God's word or subtract from it. You see, it all begins with fudging the scriptures, doesn't it? It all begins with saying, you know, the Bible says this, but I'm going to tell you something else. Now, Jesus can say that. He didn't say, I'm going to tell you something else. He just told us the meaning of them, those things. In other words, he said, I, the, the, the law of God tells you that adultery is wrong, but I tell you, even looking at someone with lust in your heart is wrong. That's true. But the false teacher will say, the scripture says this, but I say that. And he might be adding to God's word or subtracting from it. In other words, he's saying, you know, adultery is really not that bad. Lusting in your heart is really not that bad an issue. And here it is. They reject authority in that way. You know, when you're rejecting the church and its authority, you can do that in all kinds of different ways. You can do that blatantly. Or you can do that behind the scenes. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon right now that many people reject the idea of church membership. Now, what is church membership? In in my mind, church membership is the result of professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you profess faith publicly, then it is a consequence that you become a member of a church because you are vowing to the Lord that he is your savior 
And you understand then that he has given real authority to those he has called to lead the church, and thus we submit to that authority insofar as it follows the authority of Scripture. But what happens is when we reject church membership, so often we're rejecting any authority over us. In my time in South Dakota, there was someone who attended our church who was a false teacher. He had, in time past, acquired the opportunity to teach Sunday school classes or Bible studies in that church. But he was never a member of that church. In fact, he told me, as long as this church is a corporation, I will not become a member of this church. And he began to teach things against the scriptures of God. You see, what happens is if you reject all authority, if you reject especially the authority that God has ordained, in the end, what takes place is you put yourself above God, above his church, and even above scripture. And you reject authority. You reject the law of God. You reject the presence of God. You reject the created order of God. In this particular sense, this rejection of authority is lifting yourself up. So therefore, the false teacher, what does he do? He proclaims to the church his opinions and his ideas and all of those things, perhaps by vision or revelation, and he will proclaim that everyone else is subject to his divine revelations, and yet they may not match up with Scripture. Rejecting the authority of God begins with rejecting Scripture. That's the second mark of a false teacher described in verses 8 to 10. The third mark is rather bizarre in many ways. It's rather strange. Its emphasis is in verse 9. It says the end of verse 8 that they also blaspheme the glorious ones. How in the world do you blaspheme the glorious one? And then he gives us this example. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What in the world is he talking about? I can't tell you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Exodus and read about the story of Michael disputing with Satan about the body of Moses. In fact, the only description of the death of Moses is this. Deuteronomy, the end and the last chapter of Deuteronomy, if you look in your bulletin there, it says this. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. It doesn't say anything about fighting over his body. It doesn't say anything about Michael the archangel. In fact, Michael the archangel is only mentioned three times in Daniel, once in Revelation. And of course, we also know that in this, some people will tell you, and they're right, Jude may very well have been referring to an apocryphal story, perhaps in the book of Enoch, perhaps in a book called The Assumption of Moses. Is Jude then saying these books are canonical and equal or on par with Scripture? No. Perhaps some of the things that are said in these books, a few things may be true. In fact, the Scripture is full of quotes of outside literature. Even the poets of Greek society are quoted by Paul. 
In the Old Testament, some of the books that we don't have anymore, the books of the prophets of Israel or the books regarding the wars of Israel, those books don't exist anymore, but they're quoted in the Old Testament. But here, for some reason, he refers us to this event. Some people say that perhaps it's even a reference veiled from the passage we read earlier in Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, it's not Michael, it's the angel of the Lord who is contending with Satan. And this angel of the Lord tells Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Perhaps it's that. There are those new commentators who will say that this passage is referring particularly to the church and to the law of Moses and the uh, place of Moses in scripture. I think in the old commentators like Calvin and others that this passage is really referring to the body of Moses. What would happen if the Israelites knew where the body of Moses was buried? They would have a temple or a church or something. They would find a way to worship that body, a way to, in essence, go to that place and ask Moses to intervene and mediate on their behalf. After all, look what's happened to saints and even the cross or crown of Jesus around the world. You know, if we were to put all, to, all the artifacts together that claim to be a piece of the cross, we would have the biggest cross the world has ever known. If we were to have all the pieces of the saints or the saints' clothing or the saints' this or that that are reputed to be of those particular individuals and we took them all over the world and brought them in one place, we wouldn't have a museum big enough because we want to worship these things. We want to say, look, here was a servant of God, someone who served him faithfully, may have even been a terrific witness to God's grace and God's glory. And instead of looking at that as an example to follow, we want to worship them and ask them to help us rather than going to the throne of Christ. And so here, perhaps, as Calvin says, the reason why they were disputing about the body is... No one knew where the body was buried, but Satan knew so much how it would be a way to tempt the people to worship Moses instead of God. And so God sent his archangel Michael, the angel here representing God's power, to stave off the devil's idea of finding that body. But again, what does it mean to blaspheme the glorious ones? We're told that it's like the previous examples. How was it like the Israelites in the desert? Well, they rejected the glory of God, the most glorious one. How is it that the people or the angels in the time of Genesis 6 blasphemed the glorious ones? Well, by seeking to reject their place, they were blaspheming themselves before God's presence. And, of course, blaspheming the other angels who were faithful. How is it that Sodom and Gomorrah were blaspheming the glorious ones? They didn't even know that the people in Lot's house were angels. And when they sought to have sinful relationships with them, they were blaspheming them in that sense. The scriptures use blaspheme in regard to actions as well as heresies. And here, the best example in verse 9 is that we would not blaspheme, or a false teacher would not blaspheme, or, or would, uh, would blaspheme, rather, unlike the archangel Michael. 
in this description of this story, how could Michael have blasphemed a glorious one? Well, it's interesting. It's not a positive example of a glorious one. It's actually a negative one. He did not presume to blaspheme the devil. How do you blaspheme the devil? We see the devil, we know, was originally a glorious one. Scripture says he was more glorious than all the others of his creation. It describes in great detail the beauty and the wonder of this created Satan. And yet that individual in his pride chose to rebel against God and he was rejected and kicked out of heaven. Jesus even describes having seen the devil and his angels fall from heaven. To blaspheme the devil is to presume to have the authority to damn the devil. And Michael recognizes it's not his job. Instead of presuming to say what was true, even true about the devil, and proclaiming judgment upon the devil as one of God's originally glorious ones, instead he calls upon the Lord to rebuke the devil. Think of this. Some of us recognize the evil in some of our leaders. We recognize, for example, that some of our leaders are liars. Some of our leaders promote immorality. Some of our leaders pass laws that are unjust. Some of our judges do things that are opposed to the righteousness of God. But we should still call them by their titles. We should still show respect for them because God has called them to be those over us. And in that sense, we submit to God's authority by placing them in authority over us. For some reason in our day, we've dropped the term president. Whether you're referring to President Trump, President Biden, President Bush, whoever it is, we've dropped those terms and we just call them by their names. And then what we do is we not only badmouth their policies and their decisions and their actions, but we begin to blaspheme them personally, calling them names, belittling them, all of those things. This is what Michael could have done with the devil. But instead of blaspheming the devil in that way, he called upon God to rebuke the devil. You see the difference here. A false teacher will presume this power upon himself because he has rejected God's authority. He has claimed that authority for himself so that he can proclaim judgment on others. Perhaps it's the judgment of someone who is unjust in the society around him. Perhaps it is judgment on someone in the community who is taking advantage of others. But in the end, it will often lead to the judgment of someone who is faithful in his own assembly. In other words, don't claim authority, even over demons, so much as demonstrate submission to Christ's authority. There's another example we could turn to. That is the example in scripture where those who proclaimed the name of Christ and went out to exercise demons from an individual. 
And they went in and they said they had proclaimed in the name of Christ that these demons would come out of this man. And these demons said to them, Christ I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And they took that demon-possessed man and with the power of these demons, they overtook these men and they began to abuse them so that they left the house bleeding and damaged because they were not believers necessarily in Jesus Christ. They invoked Christ's name, yes, but they were not submitting to Christ's authority. This is a false teacher. Those who would on one hand take the mark of polluting the flesh, they won't begin with that because they're creeping in unnoticed, but in the end you'll find out that they're interested in their greed and their lusts. Secondly, they will reject authority, and this becomes emblematic or uh, a sign as you go through their teaching, more and more it becomes about their teaching rather than the teaching of Scripture. And finally, they will take authority unto themselves, even to blaspheme those who might legitimately be condemned by God, but they take it upon themselves to pronounce that condemnation. So what is the conclusion of this matter in these three verses? Of course, it's to watch out, to be prepared. Watch out for any authority not based on God's word and the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember now a few years ago, there were those in my church that were interested in the book called Heaven is for Real. Perhaps you remember it was a young boy that his family claimed to have had some visions of heaven. And he was proclaiming it in places all over the country and he came to the small town I was preaching in South Dakota. There were those in my church who had lost a baby and they were turning to this individual and this movement for comfort and security and they would ask me, what do you think? Heaven is for real was based on experience and visions and dreams. It had nothing to do with the word of God. In fact, this book and movie, the movie in 2014 made over $100 million at the box office. The 2010 book sold 10 million copies. It's still available today. But what's wrong with it? It's not based on the scripture. It's based on dreams and visions and experiences. Now, dreams and visions and experiences God used in his word. The prophets had visions. Joseph had dreams. John had this great revelation in which he wrote almost the entire book of Revelation from that vision and that dream. But if these things become the truth that we portray opposed to Scripture or in addition to Scripture, then we need to watch out. This is the mark of false teaching, particularly for claims of subjective authority over the authority of God. Even if angels were to come and visit this church, if they were to oppose the word of God, it's not true. It's not, it's not worth following. It's not a teacher that God wants us to follow. These false teaching dreamers have their grips in so many churches and so many lives and so many people. They're on our airwaves. They're in our churches. They're in all of the media and entertainment of our lives. And yet, by God's grace, he has provided a faithful remnant to hear warnings like this, to stand on the authority of God's word. Let's pray. Father, there are times 
when we will be tempted to follow another way. There are times where someone will creep in, all looking like they are angels of light, looking like they are gifted preachers and teachers, looking as if they are wonderfully moral people. But in the end, some of them will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Lord, give us, give us, Lord, the ability to determine truth from falsehood. Give us the ability to accept what is true and to deny what is false. Lord, protect your church. We cannot do this by our own efforts, but only by the power of your spirit. We pray in